Welcome to Next Off, a Victory Briefs podcast. I'm Lawrence Zoe, joined by Chris Tice and Jacob Nails. We're a podcast discussing all things circuit Lincoln-Douglas debate, although this week we'll be discussing something a little bit more traditional. We publish new episodes every other week. This is our fourth episode, where we'll be having an informal discussion about our thoughts of NSDA Nationals, both its online nature and the topic. Before we jump into it, we just want to remind our listeners that we have a Google form linked in the description where you can submit feedback or suggestions for future topics. Finally, thanks to Victory Briefs for sponsoring this podcast. Victory Briefs is a summer debate institute and publisher of debate materials, which you can learn more about at victorybriefs.com. Joining us for the topic analysis segment will be Jake Niebel, co-director at VBI, a professor of philosophy at USC, and a finalist at NSDA uh, which was then called NFL Nationals in LD all the way back in 2009. When we come back, our thoughts on NSDA Nationals. All right, so in this first segment, we'll be discussing our thoughts about the online nature of NSDA Nationals, um, so as a result of the COVID-19 outbreak, um, NSDA Nationals, like the TOC, has moved online. And we've had a lot of thoughts about online tournaments in the past, whether they're good or bad, how to adapt to them in the context of the TOC, et cetera. And we won't rehash them here. Instead, we want to kind of jump into some of the details specific to the traditional aspect of NSDA Nationals and how the online debate tournament experience will differ uh, given the more lay nature of this tournament. Um, so in my mind, the first and most obvious difference is that a lot of the things traditionally associated with traditional debate, so like an emphasis on presentation, tone, timber, pacing, all those sort of, you know, subtle qualities about presentation, they, they seem like they'll be like, it seems like it'll be difficult to capture them uh, over a poor internet connection in a, in a, mm -hmm. in a webcam mic. And I was wondering, um, you know, for me, I don't actually think it's going to impact debates too much, but uh, I don't know, do you have other thoughts about that? I think it might to a certain degree. I think there are some judges who at a normal nationals would pay a little bit more attention to the presentation who might be more forgiving this time around. And that probably has its limits. You can't go super fast still, I'm sure in front of most judges, but sort of the lack of complete polish may be uh, less of a disadvantage than it normally is. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So I, I judged like an online traditional tournament, the Wyoming State Tournament a few weeks ago. And um, I mean, I'm not a judge that like particularly cares that much about presentation to begin with, which makes me a little bit different than your average judge will get mm -hmm. at nationals. But I would still say that most of the relevant features of presentation, like the things that distinguish you as a better presenter than your opponent still carried through. So like debaters that just had more inflection, debaters that were more clear at enunciating debaters that just seem to have more emotional drive in their voice. I, even if it didn't carry through at the same weight as it would in real life, I still think the relevant thing is that the difference between those speakers still stood out enough to me. Interesting. I, I, I feel like one of the other sort of pressing questions is like, should students like dress up for NSD nationals? Like I know at the ETOC, like most people were kind of just wearing t-shirts and sweatpants and stuff. Uh, do you think there should still be an expectation of dressing up? Like, will kids dress up? Yeah, that's un unclear to me. Um, at the TOC, no one dressed up, as far as I could tell. Now, that's well, actually, no. Harker, be... Harker did require their students to show up wearing the suits and ties. Um, okay, I judged Harker a couple times, so maybe 
I should have remembered that. But 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 since her face was centered, like you'd see like the top end of their shirt, and that's it. Right, right, exactly. So so maybe the answer is you you dress up on top, shorts on the bottom, and it's all fine. Yeah, just for you know, don't stand up <laughs> and go to the bathroom during the the round. I, I would probably play it safe, is I guess my advice. There's no real harm in getting dressed up. Um, yeah. I could only see a downside. I agree. Like, I, a lot of these judges are going to be similar to, like, how real-life employers are, who are still requiring their employees to, you know, dress up for their online conference calls. And honestly, like, you don't have to wear a tie, although it seems like a good idea to, but just even a simple button-up shirt, it's not any different than putting on just, like, a t-shirt or anything like that. Just, I think, do it. I, I, but I feel like one of the other things that's getting lost is... Uh, not just like the speaking, but like eye contact. Like that seems like a, a huge deal um, for nationals. I remember like preparing for nationals my senior year. Like my coach made me do a bunch of practice rounds. And like some of them were strategy oriented. Like, you know, should we spend more time like explaining NC? How do we like rephrase this argument? But honestly, a lot of it was just like, you know, there's an audience, look at them. Like and if you make it to laid out rounds again, you know, you're gonna have to persuade three judges in a room of like 30 students watching. What are you gonna do to like maintain that sort of persuasive element? And how does that work in a Zoom room with a webcam? A couple, couple of thoughts here. I think for people who have been doing maybe anything that's a little circuity online, I think this is going to be a change. For the most part, judges at those tournaments are probably flowing on their laptop, the same laptop they're using for the Zoom call. And so they're not really even seeing the faces of the debaters most of the time. I don't think that's going to be the case at nationals. Mostly judges will be flowing on paper and watching the image as they're doing it. And I think that means that you have to adjust the way that you're presenting yourself to the camera too. You sh probably shouldn't be reading your case off the computer um, in some way, because that like looks really weird. You're gonna be like all zoomed in and not really making eye contact with the camera itself. I think maybe printing out your cases and reading while trying to make eye contact with your camera as much as possible is probably the way to go. I agree with that for sure. I mean, I've always suggested that kids print their cases. You know, a lot. one of the questions I always get asked by students is like, you know, can we just bring our laptops in and laptops? It's like, well, you can. It's just like that. It just seems weird to the vast majority of judges, even even myself. Like, I would much rather you read on paper. Um, and doubly important here, because I remember uh, when judging the Wyoming State Tournament, some of those kids had those nose cams, like webcams, mm -hmm. which are like at the bottom of their laptop. And so they just lean in real close. And you'd see up their noses as they're reading up, reading their cases. And that's just like, not pleasant to look at. Yeah, thinking about the framing of the camera is important. At TOC, I know, even when kids didn't have those weird webcams, sometimes they would hold their laptops while they were speaking and like look straight down. And so all you could see was like their ceiling and like part of their face. Yeah. And that's not a good look. I think you need to make sure you're framed in the camera, eye contact with the camera, and ensure that the background is like professional looking or at least not distracting. Right. Because I feel like a lot of the traditional tips that we've given before uh, that are just like, have a good mic and stuff all apply here. But mm -hmm. I, I, some of the details I think are doubly important. Like if kids were slightly out of frame, you saw their ceiling, whatever at the TOC, I mean, shoot, I was very rarely looking at the Zoom call. I was mostly flowing, you know, following mm -hmm. along cases, et cetera. But here, I mean, with all those judges paying so much attention, like I, that might just be the difference between a judge that feels more you know, connected with you in some way or another. And I think a lot of attention should be placed on doing a practice run before nationals where you can focus on you know, setting up your webcam properly, uh, making sure your background is good, making sure that when you're speaking, you are communicating with the camera as kind of odd that it is. And I think those will all play not like a huge role, but like not an insignificant role either. 
uh, especially for a good pool of the judging of a good pool of the judges who are you know coming in from uh you know not particularly circuit friendly places i guess maybe taking a step back putting the online thing aside maybe a little bit what advice would you have as someone who has done really well at nationals coach people who do really well at nationals what advice would you have for them, for someone from coming from a circuit background to be able to get nationals this year what are the main types of changes you need to make so broadly speaking a lot of the emphasis will fall off of just like you know did you properly exploit a technical concession did you like execute your impact calculus well did you like convey a strong knowledge of your literature base in like a way that communicates well with the judges that share your prior assumptions and stuff some of that stuff will still be important obviously i'm not saying like don't weigh don't know your stuff whatever but whereas i think a lot of people view competitive circuit debate as you know just some competitive game where it's like decided on small points strategic concessions moves and stuff like that i think it makes a lot more sense to take a step back and view debate kind of in its original intention which is just like some persuasive speaking activity it's just you know as much as we make fun of dueling oratories as like kind of an impact to some of our theory arguments like in some sense traditional debate is a series of dueling oratories where a lot of your framing technique should be centered around convincing the judge that your speech is the one that they should sort of buy into and, you know, there's like a lot of other smaller tips that I have, like, uh, I have this track called Debating Traditionally that's up on the VBI YouTube page that mm-hmm. basically is my not very well put together and back when I still had really terrible haircut days, uh, <laughs> thoughts about how to debate traditionally and how to take some of the knowledge that you've garnered about thinking strategically and exploiting them in debate. But I think the first, se- the first topic, uh, the first part of that track is where I spend a lot of time emphasizing the need to like add pathos and ethos into your presentation, which will be harder to communicate via the online format, but are still relevant. That is like where the increased emphasis comes in. Because it doesn't matter if, you know, you think you have a good argument, if the judge just doesn't care or they don't like you. And those are two important things that traditional judges like really do factor into their decisions, either consciously or subconsciously. And so taking a lot of time to take a step back and think, you know, what makes this persuasive, right? Like, you know, do they like me? Do they like the arguments that I'm making? Do they, do they want to vote for me? That sort of thing. Those are all really important. Yeah. My experience, that's, that largely tracks as well. I think one thing I would sort of warn debaters off of is there's a type of circuit debater who comes to nationals and tries to adapt, who thinks that these judges only decide based on how pretty you are speaking which is yeah. merely one element of being persuasive in the minds of lots of these judges. And that tends to come off as condescending. Oh, yeah. <laughs> judges are teachers, coaches, intelligent people who just have different preferences. And when you come in and you just speak in a voice that's very clearly put on to sound really nice, but it's clearly fake and are lacking in substance because you don't think they care about substance, they see through that and it's not going to go well for you. I think communicating effectively as sort of like a minimum bar of clarity, of emphasis and showing emotion about what you care about. But it's, it's more about creating overall persuasion, both through the way you're speaking, but also the arguments you're making, having something that sticks in the judge's mind, like phrases that you repeat that make arguments, connect to judges, things like that. All that is totally true. Like overadaption is a thing, right? Where you're just like, I spoke prettier. Why didn't I win? It's like, well, that's that. Sometimes is is a reason for decision, but I, I actually find that largely that just tends to be like an excuse given by a judge, which 
you know, track some, and they're, and they're actually just tracking some underlying feature, you know, it's like, oh, they thought you were condescending, so they didn't vote for you. Um, or they just like thought the other person was more likable and they sounded better. So they said, you know, oh, I like the way that the other debater sounded. And, you know, one of the things they're tracking is how well you speak, but certainly not the only variable at play here. And I think frequently is kind of just like a substitution in the judge's mind for something else that they're tracking that they can't really place into words. And, and one way I, I, I like thinking about it is, you know, kind of cliche, Martin Luther King Jr. has this I have a dream speech, right? It attracts a lot of features about persuasive speaking. And in some ways, it is just an argument about the like necessity of racial mm -hmm. equality and the value that that would bring if widely adopted in society. And so like that, in my mind, is a speech that on its own holds merits, right? Just like if you looked only at the speech and separated it from the speaker, you know, there's good pathos in there, like lots of imagery, there's lots of persuasive arguments, things that like build a world in which you would find ideal. Uh, and then once you couple it with the persuasive force of Martin Luther King Jr. himself as a speaker, then that just takes it over the top and brings it into, you know, legendary speech status. I think the key there, though, is the way that speech is delivered. Effective argument, great story, good delivery. But that was like an authentic delivery to the person, right? Yes, if yes. you get up there and try to put on that affect, you come off as ridiculous and you will lose. I'm certainly not saying that you should emulate one for one Martin Luther King Jr. But, but I but, think this is something that yeah. kids go into nationals doing. They try to like really give like an over the top oratorical affect, which oh, doesn't yeah. come off as authentic. I think it is clear communication that has some emotional resonance, but also comes off authentic to the person who's delivering it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I agree with that for sure. I, I, I forget that a lot of times where I give this advice, it's like, it's mostly supposed to be taken at the margins, which is just like mm -hmm. add more persuasion, not like become and embody Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> here, um, which is sometimes what kids end up reading this as. Um, so that's, yeah, that's a good point. Mostly I present the example as sort of a, a, a case study in like things that you can do yourself, incorporate with things that you normally are like as a person. So it's like not mm -hmm. incongruent with your entire personality. You're not like totally fake up there. I mean, there's just good lessons to draw from it in terms of, uh, giving a persuasive speech. Yeah, I agree. A round that that reminds me of, actually, is it wasn't from NSDA Nationals. So it was from the Emory Tournament, but I think the point remains. It was finals of the policy division a few years back. I don't remember exactly which year. But um, for anyone who doesn't know, the Emory Tournament, you know, generally very fast and technical in every elimination round, up until finals, where they have a panel of, like, 30... 25, 30, a, a huge assortment of distinguished coaches, many of which are not necessarily the judges that are, you know, preferred and mutually preferred pool, but are judges who have been around for a long time. And so it's the type of panel that you'd want to adapt to, right? That's, you know, some coaches who are more traditional or slower, et cetera. And so I remember watching the round because uh, LD finals had already wrapped up. And they were trying to adapt by going slowly and stuff like that. But they weren't really... Like it, it didn't sound like a persuasive speech at all. It just sounded like bad condescension. I don't think it was intentional, but you're like, first off is our topicality shell. We would like to present you with this following interpretation. And it's like they're just taking the arguments that they're going to make anyway and saying it with a, a very uh, uh, sort of talking down to you uh, approach. And I think a lot of Debater. It's not necessarily adapting too much. Like adapting to judge is good. It's adapting to judge badly, and uh, I think that doesn't necessarily go off well. I remember one of the judges commenting, that, "Like you know, we're old, but we're not dumb." <laughs> and uh, yeah. yeah, I think that can be very true. Uh, you you want to give a speech that sounds rhetorically powerful, but I think a lot of debaters, if they're not used to that, might uh, have the wrong conception of how you should adapt your own speech to sound that way. And yeah, having 
a persuasive speech isn't just going slow and speaking well. It's also the content of what you say. So if you just read your same, like, extinction, three reasons, but you do it slow and you sound pretty, that's still not persuasive. You have to change the words you're saying to create emotional resonance to achieve persuasion. Oh, yeah. 100% agree. Yeah. Like... I, some people have taken this advice so far to the extremes where they're just like, I'm just basically going to read poetry, you know, like of sorts, right? Where, where they just are like, oh, like, doesn't my case sound really good? And it's like, yeah, but your case also had zero warrants and also no impacts. Like, <laughs> even even a judge that doesn't align with your predetermined conception of what like a, a lay judge is, is, is going to figure that out. Like, you know, my, my dad is like one of these judges. He's not stupid. He's like a, he's mm-hmm. a chemist. He can, he can parse through arguments, even not, even if not to the same level of rigor and scrutiny that like a debater can. Um, certainly you can like figure out if something is intuitive has a warrant has a basic impact he can ask the question so what in his mind it's not that hard to do and i think a lot of kids are just like man aren't i so good at debate because i like learned what offense and defense was and like i know how to go for a da and like i know what i know what like this critique says and it's like well yeah i mean like in that content area but it certainly shouldn't lead you to believe that you know therefore everyone else is like dumb and doesn't know how to like judge debates yeah some of these decisions might not align with your preconceived notions of like how debate works and <laughs> does not mean you should talk down to them to my mind i actually think a pretty good distinction is you get two types of judges i think that are broadly perceived of as lay you've got the the judges who are people without experience who are volunteering like parents and especially you know maybe a parent who doesn't judge that much and then you have people who are you know coaches on a traditional circuit locally maybe a teacher who is also the you know chaperone for the debate team and judges somewhat regularly or a debate coach um, who doesn't necessarily go to very big tournaments and i think the best example of the type of judge that lawrence is talking about is the latter those judges they don't want you to talk fast or be overly technical but i mean you know they have experience in debate they're, they're probably going to vote more or less on the flow with constraints about style on how you deliver it Mm-hmm. With parent judges, I actually think it's more of a mixed bag. I think you have some parent judges who are going to try pretty hard uh, and give a smart RFP. I, I will say that I don't, I don't think all parent judges are, are the way Lawrence's dad described. I think you do get some that are going to vote on random stuff. The, the type that are like, yeah, cross-ex question appealed to me as a businessman. <laughs> um, I, I heard a lot of RFDs like that as well. But like, I, I find most of those stories to be, you know, a, a lot of times when students tell you the horror stories, you're like, oh, that, that has to be really bad. And then you like ask another outside observer what actually happened. And it just so happens that like, holistically, they were losing the rounds for other reasons. And that just like happened to be one of the moments that jumped out at the judge that they latched onto. But I, I would say like it happens occasionally. I don't want to say it doesn't happen at all. But I, w- I want to say that most of the times where people complain about it, they're, they're really failing to see the round for from the perspective of that judge, given their background. Because like, yeah, I agree, like, sure, most people are not PhDs, but the amount of judges that actually just vote on a cross-ex question, very low. The amount of judges that say that they voted on a cross-ex question might be higher, but usually they're yes. tracking something else. They were overall more persuaded by just like the general way that you spoke. They, they, they liked that debater better. And so they like found reasons to like rationalize their decision. And none of those things are bugs of lay debate. Those are just features of how people in general that aren't trained in debate make decisions and you have to learn how to adapt to it. It's like how political messaging is a whole thing where you have to figure out all the things that persuade people and figure out how to like get those people to agree with you and vote for you. I think the holism point is a good one, which is, yeah, I don't want to say it was just like just one cross-ex question, but what I think that demonstrates is, because that was actually an example of round I saw. Um, what I think it demonstrates is it's not necessarily the things that you think are necessarily the most important if you're coming from a, a different background, right? Like you might think, oh, there's like a dropped argument on the flow. The judge is going to vote on that argument because it was conceded and logically it answers the opponent's arguments. 
the judge might be just thinking sort of more broadly, like which of these arguments resonated with me. And so it may, might not just be like that one argument in cross-ex is the thing they thought was like round winning and took out everything else. It was arguments like that were the ones that persuaded them and they didn't like sort of, you know, stack them up on, on a flow and decide how they interact. Uh, it was just sort of a, a more broad intuitive appeal. And so I would say that, uh, well, it might not be like a, a cross-ex is a voting issue sort of thing. It's more of a, the whole speech, the whole round is um, evaluated holistically. Uh, and not the way you might think it is. I remember I, I had a round versus a, a circuit kid who I knew, and he got kind of fist at me because I remember adapting. I was like, that was the app. And the, you know, the two errors kind of drops half, half the two in our, uh, and uh, the judge voted affirmative. And like, he, he was angry because he thought he won. And he, like, he was right that like a, you know, a circuit judge would have voted negative. So I was just like, yeah, sorry, man. That's the way this game is played. You know, we got a parent judge. I'm going to give a, a rhetorically powerful 2AR that just talks about the two issues I thought were important, not all the ones that you thought were. Um, and yeah, like the judge voted affirmative, even if, you know, they dropped like a DA or something. Yeah, like, no, that, that that's just like how the game is played. And I, I did that several times. Like I debated... Uh, a person who eventually became an NCFL national champion the following year in early out rounds of nationals. I was AF. The neg had just line by line everything with like three responses. Obviously, I cannot cover them all because, you know, you can't spread. And so the 2AR was just like, you know, opening line was something about like, let's just ignore the flow, you know, just like look at this debate kind of holistically. Let's just kind of look at the, you know, the big questions posed by this debate. And very clearly on any technical evaluation of the debate, I had lost, but I had picked up two judges, which is all you need, and both of them had voted AF for the two reasons that I've, I picked as the most important of the two AR. It's like, yeah, I mean, technically I lost, but I knew what I needed to do to try to get the ballot. That's what I was going to do. Yeah, I actually found that as a debater, I naturally would feel compelled to make sure that my rebuttals hit every little line-by-line arc. Like, I'd flow like a one-sentence thing from the opponent and want to respond to it. And I found that I improved in late debate, as I just said, what are like the things from their speech that sounded most important and just sort of ignored like half the two and R and then like said my important things and maybe addressed the, the few important things that they said, because most of the judges are not following the, like the random fourth one liner they had on contention one. And it makes being half a lot easier, right? Because it's, it's easy to get spread out when you're speaking in a hundred words a minute um, until you realize you don't really have to cover every single thing. You have to win one or two core issues and the judge isn't, usually going to go back and line up every single little argument they're going to vote on the things that stuck out the most. I guess that's a fairly good discussion for like how to adapt. And there's a wealth of resources out there. Uh, I'll link some of them in the show notes. And honestly, like if you can just like figure out what makes speeches in general persuasive, you know, political candidates in general persuasive, you can take, incorporate some of those lessons into your own debating. One last thing I'll, I'll jump back to is the technical aspect of uh, this tournament and tech, I mean, like literally technology, what are some things that debaters can do to help overcome some of the presentation gaps that will exist when debating online? So I think one thing we had kind of discussed earlier is trying to get an external webcam or one that properly centers your face. Um, I in particular use the Logitech C920, I believe is the name and clip it to my monitor. And so when I'm judging rounds, uh, debaters can see my face and they aren't looking up at me because the webcam built in my laptop is one of those nose cams and all you can see is like my nose hairs. We have external mics, but honestly, the one built into the webcam is pretty solid as is. One of the things I mentioned in a previous episode is like I really strongly suggested uh, getting a second monitor because if you do debate off your computer, and again, I think we suggest that you don't for nationals, but if you do, it makes sense to put the webcam over 
where you're reading. So that way, when you're reading, it still looks like you're looking at the webcam. And then you can put everything else, like the Zoom room or whatnot, on the second monitor. Are there any other you know, tips for debating online, given the specific context of traditional debate? One thing I would add to uh, what Lawrence just said is obviously getting another monitor, getting microphones, getting cameras, that can get pretty expensive pretty quick. The NSDA is offering uh, some grants to cover technology costs for students. They typically do this for students for travel. Um, they're doing more of them this year at smaller amounts to help students with uh, tech issues, internet issues, webcams, mics. So I would just look into that. We'll put the link in the show notes. All right. When we return, we'll have a topic analysis with Jake Niebel. All right, so for our final segment, we want to broadly discuss the topic for NSDA Nationals and some of the concepts, assumptions, philosophical literature you need to know, and the arguments for and against it. But before we jump into, you know, what most topic analysis usually do, which is just like, here's some AF arguments, here's some NEG arguments, I think this topic uh, is fairly oddly worded. Um, it's very different from a lot of topics that you might debate. So I think it makes sense to step back for a second to look at the wording of the topic, the meaning of the resolution, and some of the implications that we'll have on the debates. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with the topic or need a refresher, the wording is resolved. The intergenerational accumulation of wealth is antithetical to democracy. And before we jump into specific words or phrases like uh, the intergenerational accumulation of wealth, antithetical and democracy, all of which are their own beasts that need to be tackled in their own little parts, the first thing I want to note is that the wording of the resolution is unlike most other topics. Um, most notably, I think, because it doesn't include the word ought in there, and that might be the first topic in a long time to, to not include that phrase, but also because it's unlike other topics in that it's not worded like a prescriptive action asking you to like take a stance as to like whether or not we should end military aid, remove nuclear weapons, stop standardized testing or something like that seems merely just like a straightforward statement of intergenerational accumulation of wealth. Is it antithetical to democracy or not? And I think it's important to take a step back and think about that wording because, you know, it seems like of the comments sections that are springing up online, the conversations that are happening with coaches about this topic, it seems like a lot of students are gravitating towards interpreting this topic as if it were asking a policy question or some question about action that we ought to take. And a lot of students are moving in the direction of thinking like this is a topic as to whether or not death taxes are good or bad or estate taxes good or bad. So what are some of the problems I think, uh, or you all think, with interpreting this resolution as if it were asking a series of policy questions? Yeah, so for me, the topic is obviously politically relevant, right? The, the main discussion here is one that would affect politics. But at the same time, it's very unclear what particular policy is being suggested, right? There's no particular country being described. Um, it's not even clear that you're assuming a country that's already democracy. And there's obviously a whole lot of policies that in some way directly or indirectly affect democracy, wealth, and so forth. And so it, if you were to try to interpret it as a question of policy, it's not really clear what you would get. Um, I think you, you have to strain the reading quite a bit um, or you know, do your own you know, creative interpretation. To me, it seems more like what broader principles should government, politicians, et cetera, hold and act upon when they then go about making policies. And so while it would have an impact on policies, it's not itself describing a policy that you're directly debating to be good or bad. It also could be the case, and I think this is going to be the problem with picking any particular policy, like the ones you were listing, Lawrence, that the, the principle described by the resolution is correct, but then some particular policy that seems in line with that is bad for you know, some other reason, or is just you know, not a particularly good example of that principle. And so pointing out that one policy is good or bad doesn't directly strike me as a good way to affirm or negate that topic. 
It seems like also uh, pointing to one or more policies that may impact intergenerational wealth also raises the problem of solvicality. <laughs> if the negative demonstrates that that policy, whether it's an estate tax or something, doesn't meaningfully affect intergenerational accumulation of wealth, then the affirmative becomes not topical, which seems a very strange way to go about interpreting a topic. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It seems like the kind of implicit interpretation of the resolution or what the affirmative burden would be for that for that approach to make sense would be something like uh, the affirmative has to defend some policy that is designed to reduce the intergenerational accumulation of wealth by some agent, maybe a democratic one if they want to make the word d democracy relevant somehow. And it just seems like, as Jacob said, that that's just not... Uh, the topic and it's independent of the resolution in both ways. One is that you could believe that the intergenerational accumulation of wealth is antithetical to democracy and believe that uh, any of those particular policies shouldn't be done because, uh, or it's not the case that those policies ought to be uh, done because democracy is not the only value, or maybe democracy is not even a value. There are people who are opposed to democracy. Um, particularly when, on the topic of intergenerational accumulation of wealth, actually. Um, and in the other direction, you could think that uh, those policies ought to be done, but not for anything like the reason that they're antithetical to democracy. So it just seems that the, the half of the resolution being antithetical to democracy is just disappearing. To me, that actually brings up a related question, which uh, th this resolution strikes me as kind of unique. Um, I can't even think of a particularly good example off the top of my head of an of resolution in the past, I think is very similar to this, in that it's very clearly like not directly normative. Right? It's not saying ought or should or anything like that. The the standard by which the, the thing is being evaluated is like antithesis with democracy. I want to say and this is before my time, but wasn't there a topic back in like 04, 05 that had a wording similar to this? Might be the most recent example. Democracy is best served by the strict separation of church and state. Yeah, that one. Four, looking... maybe five TOC topic. Five. Um, that's, I'm yeah. also I'm looking back through the long list of topics. The only other time that the word antithetical shows up is Jan Feb 1991, <laughs> which is oh, showing man. disrespect was, for the American flag is antithetical to fundamental American values. Ooh, that's hilarious. <laughs> that's when I was born. I was born in, in Jan Feb 91. Yeah. My I, I submitted uh I, I submitted topics that were similar to this, and one of my wordings was like more abstract, the legal inheritance of private property is unjust, and the others were less abstract, like the United States ought to impose a near total inheritance tax on bequests other than those in the public interests, or the US ought to eliminate limits on a state and gift tax. And I imagine that the committee thought that direct tax questions would seem boring, and the other question would seem too abstract. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I believe those suggestions may have been the providence of this topic, Jake, so thank you. <laughs> I think it's an interesting topic. It's just a bad word. There wasn't a state tax topic on the, the docket for like a few years straight, weren't there, and it just never got chosen? Yeah. Yeah. A little inside info here is it seemed, I don't think a tax topic has basically ever been chosen, <laughs> and so the committee kind of shies away from them. I find tax topics to be interesting, but they never get voted for. Um, anyways, I actually never got around to asking the question I wanted to ask, which is, it, and actually the, the, the examples that Jake just listed, I think are a good contrast with this, which is if you debate a topic like the ones that he was suggesting, like estate taxes, something like that, then you're basically directly asking, like, is this a good or bad policy? Ought we or ought we not do that? But this topic, you know, sets up an indirect standard of like, 
antithesis to democracy. And so it seems to me, and y'all can tell me if you disagree, that it's not even particularly relevant what you think, you know, the correct moral theory or the correct criterion is. You can think that, you know, utilitarianism is true, but if you also think that utilitarianism is not consistent with democracy and like democracy is fundamentally deontological or something, then the relevant question for the topic is not, is intergenerational accumulation of wealth actually bad? Just is it inconsistent with this thing that I, while I may or may not disagree with it, um, says it is bad or is good. And so for me, the, the standards level debate of which criterion is best is on this topic, going to be fundamentally different from most topics. And you're not really saying my theory is capital T true or anything. You're saying my theory accords with democratic principles, which whether democracy is good or bad are what they are. Yeah. I mean, it's as if the, the affirmative who interprets this resolution to mean some one of these policies ought to be passed thinks that if you replace democracy with plutocracy, that would like radically change the affirmative burden or, or would require the affirmative to be like pro plutocracy or something like that. And wouldn't just be uh, a topic that's just like a clear negative. Uh, obviously it's consistent and not antithetical to plutocracy to have people uh, accumulate wealth across generations. Um, maybe they think that if the word democracy is in there instead, it, 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 it implicitly connotes an evaluative stance uh, against that thing, but that just seems wrong. Yeah, while I would not suggest it, especially at nationals, like I imagine a perfectly internally consistent affirmative case could just be like, look, intergenerational accumulation of wealth is great and democracy is silly because democratic principles say intergenerational accumulation of wealth is bad. And so you could affirm the topic and say, uh, wealth accumulation is antithetical to democracy without endorsing either of them. I mean, you could consistently think those two jive with each other, and I just like both. A weird strategy, but especially at yeah. online NSC and nationals. But yeah. this is not a suggestion of mine. <laughs> in, in, in kids listening. Don't necessarily write that case. It's just an interesting thing I thought to think about. I guess an adjacent question that I have is that is it possible to interpret this solely as just like a, you know, is descriptively, is it the case that intergenerational wealth is antithetical democracy and not consider evaluation of particular policy proposals to potentially solve the problem of intergenerational accumulation of wealth? So like the NEG probably wants to say something along the lines of like estate taxes are unjust or like death taxes are unjust and say that like those are the only possible solutions to the intergenerational accumulation of wealth. And the NEG wants to make arguments about some problems with those policies. Does the AF have to defend those? I would think that Examples can be helpful, but it also depends on what your objection to that example is. So, for example, if I was objecting to the estate tax on grounds that really had nothing to do with its relationship to democracy or to wealth, like I just said, it's politically unpopular. And so separate from whether it's effective at solving wealth or separate from whether it's democratic or not, it, it would just like have negative political ramifications. I would have simultaneously, I think, you know, refuted that policy without really saying much about the underlying principles that the resolution was asking about. And so I think examples can be indirectly relevant, but like just directly proving or disproving one example, I don't think, you know, automatically affirms any against this topic. It seems to add extra steps to what the negative needs to do too, in a way that I don't see how it's helpful. So for example, you could argue estate taxes are in fact antithetical to democracy because you should have freedom to control your property or something. But to do that, you have to prove that, you know, freedom to control your property is constitutive of democracy. And once you do that, it seems like the intergenerational accumulation of wealth would be just fine anyway, right? Like, why do you have to get into the specifics? Yeah, that seems right. And uh, Lawrence, you mentioned, well, what, what if the affirmative or the negative shows these policies which would be necessary for curbing the intergenerational accumulation of wealth are unjust? Well, that wouldn't show that, 
that wouldn't deny that the that the intergenerational accumulation of wealth is antithetical to democracy. And I mean, it, this is particularly clear when you think about like libertarian arguments. So like, a right libertarian is going to say, yeah, like uh, you know, we shouldn't have certain policies that are designed at the to limit the intergenerational accumulation of wealth. But they're not. Nothing about libertarianism commits you to the view that the intergenerational wealth is perfectly consistent with democracy. It just doesn't say anything about about that. It, it obviously doesn't seem necessary or decisive. It just seems to be the you know intuitions of debaters who want to move this uh, topic as quickly as possible out of like this relatively uncertain realm that it's in. It's like very vacuous and move it to something that they can like clearly understand. Like is X policy good, bad sort of thing. And I think you know, despite our ca- words of caution, I think most debaters are still going to do that anyways. Although I kind of wish that they wouldn't. Well, that that's only going to have these effective to a certain degree at nationals. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I would think that maybe this nationals will be different because uh, because it's online, but I would imagine that, you know, at least in the final round of nationals and maybe in most rounds, I would think that the object, you know, if the affirmative or, or, or the negative focuses exclusively on some particular policy generally designed to limit the intergenerational accumulation of wealth, that the response just like, you don't have to get into a big, uh, I don't know, to read a full shell or anything like that, uh, just the response that doesn't show that this thing is antithetical to democracy. That just seems like a round winning two sentence argument in front of a lot of judges, at least. So I, I, it seems like a natural impulse, maybe the, and those are obviously valuable to debates to have, but like, if you want to win nationals or get really far at nationals, that doesn't seem like a super promising strategy to invest your time in. And it seems like uh, it would be better to invest your time in having the maybe the less natural, less comfortable, uh, and more abstract debate that's uh, what the resolution's about, even if that's a worse debate to have. Now, relatedly, I think, as to what policies even count, I know we've talked a lot about estate taxes, and when I hear intergenerational accumulation of wealth, that's obviously, I think, a good example of where my mind would go. But it's not even clear to me that estate taxes end up being a good example, given the second half of the resolution. I don't think that most people arguing about the estate tax or other solutions to intergenerational accumulation of wealth argue primarily from a position of this is what democracy requires. Or it's undemocratic to have this. I mean, maybe some could. You, you can certainly make that argument. Some people make but that argument. Yeah, it's not even obvious that, you know, just supporting an estate tax commits you to thinking that this is based on something inherent to democracy. And... So to me, just showing that the estate tax is good at resolving that problem wouldn't even suggest much about its connection to like democratic principles. The example that I was thinking of more so when I saw the topic was more like the Citizens United decision, which although it's not about you know, intergenerational accumulation of wealth or anything, does at least seem more directly related to the relationship between like wealth and democracy, right? Like is spending money an example of like protected speech or not in an election context? And so that was where my mind went is things like that. Like do democratic principles for like election procedure um, say anything clear about whether having more wealth is positively or negatively influencing or entirely unrelated to elections. And so it's not even clear to me that like the examples that are directly getting at the the core question. So that, that actually raises a question for me, which is, if what you're basically saying is things like Citizens United, money and politics seem more directly connected to the question of democracy than maybe just like people having money in general, is that a negative argument that someone could make? That having money isn't what's antithetical to democracy, but within certain political systems, it can be funneled in ways that is. 
So we should break that connection. We should have fine, uh, you know, uh, campaign finance reform. In a world of campaign finance reform, then intergenerational accumulation of wealth is not a threat to democracy. I like that argument. You could just say, we can have a democracy that has stronger protections than we currently do to both have accumulation of wealth and also not have it negatively influence our democracy, even if that's currently a problem. It's not one fundamental democracy. That makes sense to me. So is that what you think the affirmative burden is, to show there's some inherent connection between the accumulation of wealth and a threat to democracy, not just like one that does exist currently? Yeah, so to me, and I imagine we were gonna to get to this in a second anyway, the word antithetical does sound pretty strong. Like when I read the topic, it does seem to be that the AF burden is a little bit more than just some sort of incidental negative. Like some of the definitions of antithetical go as far as being like mutually incompatible. And you know, that seems a little bit strong to me. Like something that has accumulation of wealth, it just like is not democracy, um, strikes me as a bit too far. But even like the most modest you're gonna get is something like indirect opposition to like wealth accumulation and democracy run diametrically opposed directions. And any reading of antithetical, I think that's plausible, seems to suggest that the AF has to take a pretty strong stance. Uh, And so I would think that negative argument at least strikes me as like a valid argument within the realm of the topic that the AF has to think about answering. I I do lean towards this kind of like inherent conflict interpretation of the topic, but I don't know how much of it comes from antithetical, partly because like, I would imagine the alternative reading of the topic is something like, like it's admissible to say, given current, given economic uh, constraints and uh, policies roughly like those in place, the intergenerational accumulation of wealth is antithetical to democracy. Like if someone just uttered the resolution and first said, given these facts, like that we don't have like a wealth tax and things like that, uh, and that uh, you know, uh, Citizens United and all, all these other facts, taking for granted certain features of the current political and economic climate, intergenerational accumulation of wealth is antithetical to democracy. That seems, um, that doesn't seem like something that I, I would naturally interpret as topical, but it doesn't seem like someone who thinks that, you know, it doesn't, isn't using the word antithetical correctly, but I'm not sure. The thing that that makes me think of is, it seems to start from a, a context that the revolution doesn't obviously give. Like if it said in the United States, then I think it'd be a, you know, yeah. a good example of like, it's not necessarily about the United States in sort of like abstract values, like the current political climate, but it's not even clear to me like which political climate, like I said, it's not even clear that right. we're talking about a country that's already even a democracy, right? We could talk about the principles of democracy that should guide countries that aren't yet democracy. And right. so just the to democracy rather than like to American democracy or to our current political system makes me naturally think the, the more atemporal one is the, the more accurate reading of the topic. It does seem, so call the one interpretation the inherent or atemporal interpretation, the other is like the circumstantial interpretation. I think that inherent one seems seems right uh, because there's nothing in the resolution that would make <laughs> you think that it's about these circumstances rather than another. And it seems absurd to say that the affirmative could just like pick whatever ones they want, talk about some the circumstances, some random country that um, make uh, intergenerational accumulation of wealth and federal democracy there. Um, or random time period, let's say. Um, but yeah, it, it's not totally clear to me how that how to resolve that dispute. But I, d- I definitely agree with your with your view about it. All right, so that's a good conversation about uh, sort of broad readings of the topic, how you should interpret it. Um, I also personally lean towards the a temporal reading. I can plausibly imagine a good argument for the other interpretation, although I imagine some debaters will concoct justifications for that view. So I guess the main 
two questions that have to be resolved in terms of like dealing with the abstractness of this topic, the sort of vacuous nature of it is one, what is a democracy? Uh, and two, perhaps more important, what does it mean for something to be antithetical to democracy? Now we kind of alluded to some of those questions earlier. I personally think that the, and, and this is just like an sort of initial intuition is that like figuring out what a democracy is, is fairly important for determining what is antithetical to democracy but it seems like there are diverging views here, which is like, you can probably settle the question of what is democracy without having to get too much in the weeds and just start arguing about what is antithetical to. And so well, I guess, Jake, you're the one who more strongly espoused the view that like looking at the word antithetical is more important. What's the reason for that? I don't know that I think looking at the word antithetical is more important. It's just that I think that the question of what's valuable about democracy, what's Im what justifies democracy, that's a more tractable way of answering the question, what is it for something to be antithetical to democracy than asking, doing a conceptual analysis of the word democracy. Partly because I think that democracy, like most abstractly, is just a method of collective decision-making in which the collective makes decisions for themselves and there's some level of equality uh, in that decision-making. Obviously, representative democracy sacrifices some of that equality, has hierarchies, in that representatives are the ones that make the decisions, but there's a level of equality in contemporary representative democracy in that, for example, everyone has one vote and that's the sense in which the collectively we're, uh, we make a decision um, rather than say an autocrat making that for us. Beyond that, uh, that doesn't establish much by way of firm constraints over, uh, that can help us answer the question of whether intergenerational accumulation of wealth is antithetical to democracy. Um, so I think that the way to derive firmer constraints, a criterion basically, uh, is to ask the normative question of why, if it's value, assuming it is, why democracy is valuable. Or, I mean, if, if you prefer a non-normative reading of this resolution, which we kind of talked about, um, the question of what, what value is, is democracy supposed to help us uh, achieve if, if you deny that democracy is actually valuable. Um, so that's that's the approach that, I would go largely for reasons of tractability. So I guess then in, so other than the democracy as a sort of collective decision-making procedure in which some level of equality is shared by those decision-makers, do you think that there's, you know, any value in trying to figure out other like different interpretations of democracy and defending those in different rounds for a strategic advantage? So like an affirmative that defined democracy as like requiring, you know, three or four components for it to be a full democracy and then arguing that IGW is inconsistent with all four of those constraints, whereas the negative adopts like a fairly loose reading of democracy, which is just like, it is collective decision-making, IGW has very little effect on that um, as, as a whole negate, you know, because it, it seems to me like there is value in, in for both sides to pick a different definition of democracy and like what it entails to get a strategic advantage. Yeah, um, I definitely can see getting a strategic advantage after out of different definitions of democracy, but it seems to me that there's very little basis for preferring one of those definitions over the others. So like, if, if an author wants, I, I would imagine that most authors, you know, when writing about that, that topic will, are just going to be like, I'm going to use democracy this way. But like, it's obviously perfectly fine to use it, democracy to instead, rather than the very broad use and broad and general use I mentioned, you could define democracy as like a very specific form in government in which everyone gets, in which decisions are made by vote and everyone gets one vote. Or maybe does democracy require majority rule? I'm, I, you can use the word democracy however you like, and I'm sure people do use it in many different ways. And there just seems to me very little basis for determining that. Obviously, someone's going to say that's the reason why there should be, that should, that should be the content of a topicality debate, which, uh, so this issue should be decided based on 
what's going to produce the best uh, debates or something like that, given that all of these uses are um, otherwise admissible. Um, but it seems to me that that's, that that's also not a very attractive debate. And uh, um, I think that the more interesting and helpful debate to have, uh, and one that does not push every round to an irresolvable uh, topicality debate would be, is the normative and philosophical question, which is what values is democracy supposed to, um, what, what's supposed to be valuable about democracy? That sounds to me more tractable. Uh, and there's a lot of debate about that question in political philosophy. That sounds uh, to me like a question that um, is more valuable for students to, to learn about than uh, you know, just having uh, two definitions with little else in favor of them other than it helps your side, but really I'm gonna say that it's fair or more educational or whatever. Even so, you still have to, it seems like, have a conception of what counts as a democracy. Like the, the things I'm thinking of are, you know, liberal versus illiberal democracies. Like there's a lot of literature about secular and non-secular right. democracies, right? Like democracy, for example, if it, you know, starts to spread in the Middle East, might take a very different form than the sort of democracy, the sort of values that you've seen in prior democracies. And so even the question of like, what are the values that democracy is supposed to serve seem to already presuppose like a, a conception of like what democracies are. Like I imagine democracy in the Middle East might, for example, a lot of times doesn't necessarily presuppose like secular principles that other democracies are meant to establish. Um, so how would you resolve those disputes without, you know, an equally arbitrary? Yeah, so, so it, it's true that certain ar arguments for and views about the value and justification of democracy are going to take different stances on what and might lead to different views about what democracy is. But I think there's a kind of, so I think there might be a kind of mutual interaction between those things. But um, I think that there might be enough by way of just the purely normative uh, question that, um, that, that, that can be resolved without first figuring out. Um, I don't think we, we necessarily need to know exactly which countries qualify as democracies within the broad, vague, definite, admittedly vague definition to figure to have the general debate about what's valuable democracy. So some examples, I'll just mention some examples of these views and maybe how they bear on the resolution. So, you know, one, one view is that there's uh, a broadly egalitarian view. So democracy is valuable because it's a system in which people uh, relate to one another as equals. Um, it embodies a certain kind of equality in different authors flesh that out in different ways. Um, you know, maybe some of those people are gonna say one person, one vote is like really an essential part of that, but a lot of the justifications for it don't really appeal to uh, very precise forms of democratic government, but just things that uh, uh, the general idea of democracy, a group ruling themselves ha has in common. Um, other views will say democracies are broadly instrumental views say, democracy is valuable because it helps us achieve better outcomes uh, or more just outcomes. Um, uh, some kind of so-called epistemic defenses of democracy basically appeal to the wisdom of crowds. Um, and there, while it's true, like, you know, some ways of putting crowds together are going to uh, get uh, more wisdom out of them than others, but these views will say that, that that's, the, that's the reason to have anything like one of these democratic systems uh, is what they'll say. Others, other views will say that democracy is instrumentally valid. Democracy is like a system in which everyone has certain fundamental rights, um, and that's going to favor the more liberal uh, conception of democracy. Um, so it's true there that maybe th those views are only talking about certain democracies, but it's only certain governments that we, we might call democratic. But it's also open to those people to say that, um, yeah, those uh, countries that don't have, uh, don't provide the same kinds of uh, 
individual freedoms that we see in liberal democracies. Um, you can call them democratic maybe, but they don't have the distinctly valuable kind of thing in the vicinity. So it seems that, you know, that while it's always going to be reasonable to say that uh, I, I, to, to use this democracy in a sense that is looser or narrower um, to rule out certain things, to say that some of them don't embody that value or, or, or embody it less. Um, it seems like a tractable way to proceed to say, um, okay, whatever, however you want to use the word, here's the thing in the vicinity that's really valuable and important. Um, and it seems reasonable to assume that, uh, that, that that would be something the resolution would, would want us to talk about. But um, yeah, I, I don't think any, any way of approaching that question is going to be really decisive but I, I think it just helps make some progress. Well, so, so how do you suggest um, debaters start like theorizing about what makes something antithetical to democracy then? So like my suggestion, think of things that you would broadly consider no matter what your conception of democracy is to be antithetical to democracy. So like you can start pretty large and just look at different democratic or different systems of governance, like what makes totalitarianism inconsistent with democracy. And you can narrow it down a little bit more and get in little muddy waters. Like, do you think gerrymandering is antithetical to democracy? Do you think that like voter suppression is antithetical mm -hmm. to democracy? Do you think like, as Jacob mentioned earlier, Citizens United is? Well, I would I would read the literature. Is my would be my suggestion. I don't know if that's the answer you're looking for, but I would uh, I would look into different accounts of the value of democracy. That's a big debate in political philosophy, as I said. So I would look at the kind of uh, the egalitarian views like uh, by Nico Kolodny's papers, Rule Over None, um, and Elizabeth Anderson's uh, work on relational equality. I believe uh, Cristiano's work on uh, political equality and democracy. Um, I would look at these, the so-called um, epistocratic uh, accounts of democracy by David Estland as an example. Um, and uh, and the other uh, other things I mentioned, there's a recent survey article on the value of democracy in the Journal of Value Inquiry. Um, and then there's, uh, an, uh, I believe, older uh, discussion of justification for democracy in, in the SEP entry on democracy. But I, I would start with things like the Kolodny paper, things like that. I would also look at, um, you know, there are some recent philosophical books on intergenerational accumulation of wealth. And some of them do appeal specifically to appeals to democracy. Uh, uh, and I would look at that and then work backwards from there and figure out what the co conception of democracy they're working with. Um, an example of an author who talks specifically about intergenerational accumulation of wealth and democracy, uh, Stuart White, civic minimum on the rights and obligations of economic citizenship. Um, you know, thinks that, uh, that inheritance is, uh, at odds with what he calls a like a, a mutual an eth the ethos of democratic mutual regard, uh, and that 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 has a kind of Rawlsian flavor of reciprocity to it. Yeah. So sorry, my answer would be just uh, do some <laughs> do some reading and and cutting cards. I think that you're only going to get so far just like thinking about particular examples. So transitioning this away from like interpretational questions of the topic, of which I assume there are still many, because wow, this topic is weirdly worded. I guess it makes sense to move into discussing some arguments for and against the topic, you know, starting with the AF. I'm going to guess that the most obvious AF argument that everyone's going to gravitate towards is just like IGW leads to, you know, unequal distributions of wealth, inequality is bad for democracy, call it end there. Well, I would agree that IGW leads to differences in wealth. 
some of my definition. I think that there's a number of ways that that could be bad for democracy, though. Going back to something that we're talking about in the definition of democracy, I think there's a number of different aspects of democracy that wealth distribution could potentially influence. And if I were the affirmative, I think I'd probably be trying to set up a somewhat rigoristic definition of democracy that has a bunch of components, and then saying wealth accumulation is independently consistent with like a bunch of these. And then if it is antithetical to one of those principles, then yeah, I would. Exactly. And so, you know, obviously self-serving but strategic for the F to say, look, democracy has a lot of requirements. Uh, this violates a, a ton of them. And maybe by the 2AR, I'm telling you that it violates one of them, but any of these is sufficient for me to win. Um, now, examples of those, you know, we talked about you know, democracy you know, epistemologically, you know, like the dem democracies make better decisions. And so I think one way you could argue would be wealth skews that, right? Democracies make less accurate decisions when there's wealth in the process. It doesn't lead to as accurate representation of what people really want. You talk about political equality, right? Equality for the law and how wealth can give you indirect influence that gives you a you know, greater standing of your citizens, stuff like that. And that, that's how I would structure an affirmative case is to say democracy has a bunch of these principles. Um, wealth interferes with a bunch of them. It, that, that last one seems the most core to the topic to me, at least the most intuitive. Set up some notion that democracy is based on um, some deep notion of equality, not just formal equality, but a deeper substantive equality between citizens and the accumulation of wealth leads to disparities in social and political power that distort results. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I agree with that. I also think though that um, it may be advantageous to not focus at least exclusively on the results of inequalities in wealth, but on other features or like the most obvious results of inequalities in wealth, like leaving democracies to make worse decisions, but um, also on what might be seen as more direct effects of differences in wealth. So differences in wealth lead to differences in maybe social status, at least in certain societies, um, in addition to possibly political power um, and arguing that democracy requires, a, as Chris said, a deep conception of equality that is just at odds with that. So even if it led to perfectly fine decisions being made, uh, people might think it's anti certain kind of uh, proponents of democracy in the what I called earlier the relational egalitarian camp um, might object to intergenerational accumulation of wealth for that reason because it leads to kind of hierarchies or something of social status. Yeah, so building off of that, it seems like you know, most debaters want to gravitate towards the arguments about the like negative effects of inequality uh, and and talk about it mostly in the realm of consequences. Is there any way we can take this argument and make it you know, less reliant on demonstrating some empirical effect, uh, as you just mentioned, uh, between you know, inequality and the, and the process of democracy, the outcomes that democracy is supposed to bring about? So you can find empirical studies on the sort of procedure aspect of how does wealth influence democratic decision-making? I know there's, there's that one study that was real stark that I think a lot of people have probably seen by now. That's just like the decisions made by politicians in the United States correlate very strongly with the political views of the wealthiest citizens and basically zero with the least wealthy citizens. And that seems like a pretty measurable way in which it almost certainly for causal reasons, the larger, larger amounts of wealth in a certain subset of the population gives them more political influence in a way that's causing democracy to represent their interests in a disproportionate way. And so I think you cite a study like that, you have a good empirical uh, study that supports your claim that at a more abstract level, democracies that want to make decisions for their citizens 
are failing if they fail to account for differences in wealth. I think um, one negative response that's useful is the gambit that uh, Chris and Jacob suggested earlier of saying like, yeah, it may be true that given these circumstances, intergenerational accumulation of wealth has, it's to these inegalitarian outcomes that are harmful for democracy, but that with these other changes, political changes that uh, um, actually that would mitigate that or, or eliminate that entirely. So like, I forget the examples that. Uh, <laughs> campaign finance reform. Yeah, 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 that if you had campaign finance reform, if you had certain other, suppose you had term, like very strict term limits, suppose you had a democracy where elections were run this or that way so that there would be like no. Sortition. Yeah. Uh, to minimize the effect of uh, wealth on political outcomes, then you could, the negative could effectively argue that at least on the kind of inherent slash timeless reading of the topic that that doesn't suffice for the affirmative. Yeah, I agree with that. Also speaking empirically, I think a lot of debaters who debated the military aid topic might remember that, at least by the you know, uh, econ economist intelligence units, democracy index, which I think was the most prevalent definition of that topic, the U.S. itself actually rates as a flawed democracy. So it's very plausible, I think, you could suggest that U.S. not even being in the category of full democracy suggests it is itself not fully consistent with democratic principles. And so studies like that might not suggest that democracy can't account for a generational accumulation of wealth without being biased, just that the U.S. is not particularly good at having the correct procedures in place to do so. There are also a lot of studies put out mostly by conservative outlets that seem to suggest that inequality has almost no bearing whatsoever on political process, outcomes of political decisions, and that they, there's no correlate between like the wishes of the rich and the you know policy proposals that get passed by the government. I find most of those studies to be you know a little suspect, but I, but they seem at least well done enough to defend in a debate, debate round. So I think like the negative could also move in those directions as well. Another point that I mentioned earlier, I think when we're talking about definitions, was that literature of capital in the 21st century, uh, the argument of which, the, the gist of it is just, if you have a society in which the rate of return on capital, uh, so that sounds pretty similar to intergenerational accumulation of wealth in my mind, maybe not one-to-one, -one, but very similar, is greater than the rate of growth, like in the economy in general, then you have this sort of unsustainable problem of the long-term, which is that the wealth will sort of spiral out of control, right? If wealth begets wealth more than other forms of growth beget growth in general, then any accumulation of wealth is only going to snowball until you have a very disproportionate or unsustainable distribution of wealth in a way that I imagine could be inconsistent with democracy writ large, right? Uh, and so it might not on its own um, you know, directly, like you know, the current distribution of wealth um, have enough of an impact on democracy, but I think the app could argue that if left unchecked, then the situation becomes more dire. And then you have more of a slippery slope to a scenario where it might become severe enough that you can say, well, this level of distribution becomes unsustainable. And if we don't do about it, do something about it in the minor stages, the, the, the accumulation over time only builds upon itself in a way that um, if unchecked will lead to worse scenarios. And of course, for the negative, obviously, there's a lot of economists who disagree with that claim. Uh, you can find a lot of economists who disagree with the, that book. I, I guess there's also the other push that negative can consider taking, which is like that inequality has, you know, some distortive effects on democracy. I don't think necessarily implies that it raises it to the bar of antithetical to democracy, which I guess brings it back to the like, what does it mean for something to be antithetical? I think like a negative could conceivably concede like, you know, yeah, sure, this has some impacts on democratic deliberation, blah, blah, blah. But that doesn't mean it's antithetical to. I think that uh, the negative somewhat correctly wants to point out, uh, probably it's an observation or something, you know, uh, in their case that 
antithetical does seem like a pretty strong term. Like the things we think of as antithetical to one another are not just like things that might incidentally have uh, negative effects or be slightly at odds. Things that are very much diametrically opposed. I think the negative is right about that. As the AF, I think the, the pushback, at least the amount of pushback you could sort of correctly and reasonably say is that doesn't set up a standard that's as high as like impossibility, right? We can think of a lot of things that seem antithetical to democracy, like gerrymandering or bribery, et cetera, being elections and whatnot. And yet countries that we still call democratic do have those, either sometimes systematically, sometimes from time to time. And so although they might be antithetical to democracy, like the, the US didn't just like cease being a democracy for the, the period of the Nixon administration or something like that. And so that something could be antithetical to the broader system without literally being impossible to coincide with it. And so the AF could argue that wealth accumulation falls into that category of gerrymandering and other such things that while they might exist, clearly do not run in the same direction as the other democratic principles we hold. Yeah, like by analogy, for instance, this is kind of rough, but you know, say the, to say the statement was something along the lines of like, eliminating drug testing is inconsistent with like promoting safety or societal well-being or something like that. And it just so happened to be the case that like all the drugs that, were, that didn't go through testing were still relatively safe, right? Like every, everyone who took them like got better. I, we, we would still probably find something troubling about the elimination of the process of drug testing that seems inconsistent with the goal of safety, regardless of you know, the empirical outcome of whether or not the drugs were safe mm, or not. Yeah. Um, and I think that's kind of one place that debaters should consider when they're thinking about the intergenerational accumulation of wealth, especially as the app. I mean, like you probably want to make a strong claim that it does empirically affect democracy, but that, but that there's also just something about it that regardless of its outcomes is inconsistent with democracy. While we're on the topic of, I guess, how to strategically define in your favor, uh, I think the negative also probably wants to do sort of the opposite of us suggesting for the affirmative, which is, whereas the affirmative wants to, I think, define democracy setting a lot of principles so they can say that wealth is potentially inconsistent with many of them. I think the negative probably wants to have the most minimalist definition of democracy and say democracy is anything that meets this, you know, sort of minimal requirement of, you know, upper um, control of government, power in the hands of citizens, and doesn't have any particular commitment to like liberalism or other broader you know, philosophical values. Because the less democracy constitutionally requires, the less there is for wealth to potentially be inconsistent with. And I imagine a decent negative argument flowing from that definition would just be, there's no obvious democratic way or undemocratic way to deal with wealth, you know, state taxes, uh, other policies, etc. All potentially could influence that, but part of democracy is just leaving that to the citizens. And so some citizens um, or some bodies of citizens could decide to have one policy or the other. And the only thing that's constitutes democracy is that there is no particular principle for which policies are necessarily democratic or undemocratic until they're voted on. On the flip side of that, the negative in adopting a relatively loose you know, definition of democracy could proactively impose some requirements on the affirmative as to like telling them what they need to demonstrate in order for something to be antithetical to democracy. Um, so using that loose advantage and imposing a several nibs upon the affirmative to get a strategic advantage. Not that the negative really needs one on this topic. I, I feel like it's already pretty, it's going to be pretty hard to be AF, I think. No, oh, I completely disagree, Lawrence. Yeah, uh, sorry, Lawrence. I'm, I'd flip that. I, I think IGW bad might be true. I think T antithetical just makes it real hard to be AF. Um, especially if you like know how to take advantage of Latrix and stuff like that. I just think it would be rough. I mean, I could be wrong. Like, Sorry, I want to defer to your wisdom as a former national champion, but I just really strongly disagree. It seems to me that a lot of the, ne well, the negative, ha the negative has just kind of a lot of tricksy responses to the affirmative. And I think that some of those, it'll win certain rounds at nationals, but I think like 
overall, like it's not super reliable. So I think it's, you, you have to design a really, I think the more reliable strategy is the negative design, some really powerful, intuitive uh, thing. And that's mm -hmm. harder to find than it, it's so that's super easy to find on the affirmative. And I think the negative's best bet is to just like in general for appealing to a lot of the judges at nationals is while obviously making some of these tricksy arguments, also just having like a, a cohesive and interesting negative argument that might come across as clever without being without coming across as like okay yeah, that's just yeah it, it, uh, it just seems to me in most rounds in front of these judges the app is going to be able to tell a very persuasive story about why inequality is bad that most judges will find intuitive and the negative's response will be but like not necessarily I, yeah I think that's kind and of I, I, I don't Chris, I just don't just think like not necessarily wins over many any I, I agree that it's like kind of rough on the neg because uh, in the sense that, you know, selling the story of not necessarily as anything more than defense is, it's an uphill battle. But I'm just not sure if it's, if it's a battle that the AF is correspondingly like going to win consistently just based on prior experience, uh, you know, with watching rounds at nationals and having debated them. It's just like most AFs, like they just don't spend the time to like spin their story of inequality, bad, antithetical to democracy even. In, in such a way that consistently wins rounds and overcomes just like the neg tricks. I don't know. So here's my anecdote, at least. My senior year at Nationals was actually an inequality bad topic. It was the oh, one yeah, that was that like, you know, the government governments have an obligation to lessen the gap between rich and poor citizens, which sounds very similar to this, right? Like prevent accumulation of wealth. And I remember in Elam's, for example, like the round that I got knocked out, it, the, my, my case was just on the neg, was just like, yeah, policies that tend to do this backfire. Right. If when governments attempt to do this, they end up producing growth, which hurts um, poor people more in the long run. And I, I remember the app just gave a persuasive 2AR that was just like, but inequality is bad. <laughs> judges, don't you agree? Inequality is bad. And obviously we had like the one policy judge who voted negative and then the, the two speech judges who voted affirmative. And I think that's how a lot of elums are going to go is the app just sounds right on an intuitive level. If they ignore the, the nitpicky stuff and start talking about wealth inequality, and there's not a whole lot of people who say wealth inequality is all that good. And not a whole lot of those judges are necessarily following too closely the Lambert line and voting on, you know, like one sentence definition. Yeah, I, I think the negative needs to find a way of grounding this in, in something that's a little bit more substantive and creates a persuasive story. Like maybe making this a question of equality versus freedom, like some well-tread uh, yeah. value debate ground might be more uh, useful. I think uh, Nozick's Wilt Chamberlain example will uh, win some negative oh, rounds on this, on this topic. One thing you were saying, I think, that not necessarily about the balance of AF and negative like win rates, but I think was good advice for the negative that I think both you and Jake touched on was the negative, I think, fundamentally struggles with a, a problem of offense, right? Which is there's not going to be a whole lot of people who say wealth accumulation is good and proactively necessary for democracy. I do remember the topic I debated, there was like at least a study or two that was like more unequal societies have net more growth and that benefits the poor and also the rich. And so like, there's not no literature that's like inequality is good, but I don't think that's gonna be the fundamental literature. And so I like the idea of a libertarian NC or something like that, you know, like the Wilt Chamberlain example, that sort of packages a fundamentally defensive claim of like let people do it and phrases it like offense, right? Like it, the offense is in terms of people's freedom to choose their own policies. Uh, and the more you can make it sound like the app is sort of proactively in violation of some value and not like a, not necessarily the stronger the negative case is going to sound. Even if honestly, for me, I think that's the most specific arguments to me are the nitpicky stuff. Like the topic is very extreme and it's wording. Um, 
the I think the ones that'll have more rhetorical force are gonna be the ones that are just like, there's this fundamental value of liberty and assuming democracy has to have one policy runs against that. There are, there are people who oppose certain aspects of the intergenerational accumulation of wealth, but who obviously don't think that there should be like uh, an estate tax of 100%, for example. And the reason that they tend to think that, that is because that would way decrease incentives for work and savings. So people are not going to produce as much or work as much or save as much, invest as much if they know that they can't give any of what they have to their children or, or future generations. So while I agree that inequality good is not an argument that's easy to come by, like they're the really an argument at the core of the kind of the middle of the topic of people who are like, yeah, I'm opposed to intergenerational accumulation of wealth, but like I don't favor, but like that their tax is fair, their favorite tax is fairly moderate, um, is an argument that I think the negative should make, particularly when the affirmatives uh, argument is really really extremely egalitarian. Um, there is obviously a lot of empirical disagreement about uh, the extents to which rights to bequeath have effect incentives to um, work and save, but I, I think that's the argument. That's an argument that negative should make. I also, though, agree that like it's a powerful story to um, to appeal to fundamental rights to liberty and stuff like that. It's just it's a libertarian going for a kind of broadly liber right libertarian negative is even harder on this topic than others because there's the additional step of grounding it in democracy. So there are, I think what, what you'd have to do to defend a libertarian or just generally like people have rights, you, their property is a thing and people have rights to bequeath their property and do with, with what they will with it. Um, no, that's an intuitive story if I, but uh, grounding in a democracy is hard. I think you'd have to, one thing that you would want to do is Grounded in a view of the value of democracy that says democracy is most important for protecting people's rights, uh, and that's an essential feature of a democracy. But I think that's that's still an extra annoying step that the affirmative I think should should both be prepared instead to defend a different view about the value of democracy, as well as have the affirmative has the uh, that that makes kind of left libertarian responses from the AF uh, really salient as well. So I think while that's probably a way that a lot of negatives have to go to give a powerful story. I'm not totally sure that I would, I would go uh, for that rather than the kind of incentives-based uh, thing. But it's also hard to tie the incentives offensively to something about democracy other than uh, democracy being uh, valuable for good results. Broadly, are there any like AF arguments that we kind of missed? I mean, because the broad heading of inequality seems to be most of it. Is there anything else that's like kind of relevant that can't be easily captured under the heading of inequality? I do. I like this, uh, not because I agree with it, but because I think it's interesting and, and co-ops the most natural offensive negative argument, the left libertarian argument about no, there not being a right to bequeath. But I don't think that, I think that's more of a, a nice one AR response to some of these negative arguments rather than, rather than an AF case, I think. I do recall seeing a definition of democracy that suggested part of democracy was not just the sort of direct aspect of upward control of government and uh, political equality, but also the sorts of social norms that support that. And so being consistent in democracy is not just having those laws, but having a society that sort of values and acts in ways that seem to be consistent with those principles. And so I imagine an affirmative argument could be something along the lines of, and may maybe this actually does kind of fall under the, the thing Jake was discussing earlier about relational equality but the sort of effect of wealth distributions on society, on culture, and so forth, that that sort of uh, 
societal um, distribution or the effects on the way people relate to one another then indirectly impact the way people view government, right? So uh, a, a society with as large amounts of distribution of wealth and people are okay with that might be one that's less likely to value, for example, um, the ability of like a social democracy to impose democratically selected laws on a portion of the population. I think that a lot of people could be compelled by arguments for why inequality is not intrinsically bad. That I think that can win some negative rounds, uh, even at national. So there's kind of broadly sufficientarian uh, alternatives to egalitarianism that say that what matters is not pe some people, everyone having the same amount, but some people, be people being sufficiently well off and intergenerational accumulation of wealth is obviously not bad for that. And in fact, you might, ar some, you might argue that it's necessary for that so that why shouldn't parents have a right to uh, ensure that their children aren't impoverished, for example. Uh, if you're a sufficientarian, you're gonna care a lot about that and you're not going to care at all about the fact that um, wealthier families can bequeath very large amounts of wealth to their to their children. So I do think that some of that literature would be helpful for the negative. Though again, it's hard to uh, it's hard to tie that stuff to democracy. Um, I imagine some negatives will even take it like a step further and be like, you know, you know, for minorities or for people that are already poor, like how dare you deny them the ability to like transfer wealth and stuff like that. Take the same arguments just kind of like grounded in that you know, kind of social justice lefty perspective. I was just going to say, it does seem that affirmatives are going to obviously focus a lot on upward mobility, but you know, the, the counterpoint to upward mobility is downward mobility. And, um, you know, it's a nice truism to say that democracy favor should, it's a kind of Tocquevillian uh, thing to say that democracy requires and thrives on upward and social mobility and stuff like that. But it's not so attractive when, uh, to, to then to admit the counterpoint to that and to say that downward mobility is a great thing that should be preserved. And, um, and I think that, that that might be a, a helpful thing for the negative to, to press on that. And obviously, some, some arguments are going to be perfectly happy with embracing downward mobility. But I, I do think that it's helpful for the negative to focus on rights to bequeath for people who aren't wealthy, but ha have, have some, some amount of wealth. One last argument I think the negative could consider, and I think this was alluded to briefly when we we're discussing definitions, but not actually in the argument section, is we were discussing Citizens United and the way money relates to politics. And I imagine this less of a negative contention and more of a potential response to a lot of affirmative arguments. But many affirmatives, I think, will focus in large part on the way that you know, money in politics influences the outcomes, right? Like lobbying and so forth. And the, the decision in Citizens United, which I imagine, while probably not popular with a lot of people, is currently the prevailing law of the land decided by the Supreme Court justices, is basically that that influence is good and legitimate, right? If I have money and I choose to spend it for political causes that I value, that's actually just an expression of free speech. I am you know, using things that I have to affect a cause and that it would be unconstitutional and wrong for the government to attempt to restrict my ability to influence politics and ways I see fit with things that I have a legitimate right to. And so to the extent that the, many apps are gonna say, people are using the wealth to that, we need to restrict that. I think a very plausible turn that the negative could make is just to say that the court was right in Citizens United and just you know, say that is a legitimate aspect of democracy, it is not just using your direct speech, but also using your property to affect the causes you want. And it's actually the app that is undemocratic and trying to restrict, to restrict uh, that part. All right. That sounds like a good a place as any to wrap up. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, Jake. Thanks, Jake. Sweet. Thanks. This was fun. Join us next time on the Next Off podcast.